Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special edition of the Liturgist podcast. My name is Josh Lujan Loveless, and, uh, and I'm here with uh, the man you know as Science Mike. Hey, uh, everybody. McCard. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. We're, uh, we're missing uh, Mr. Mr. Michael Gunger today. Oh. Uh, he's, he's out on the road. I've been brought in um as uh, i've been brought in from triple a i've been practicing rehearsing in the farm leagues we uh we here at the liturgist we've got a farm system set up for the podcast and uh i recently went two for three and uh was brought in uh once uh we lost mr gunger so thanks (laughs) thanks for giving me a shot here i don't even know what any of that means (laughs) i know i know you're a science guy you're not baseball mike for a reason i get that I understand. That. I thought um, it was probably baseball, and that's as much as I. Was <laughs> it's all right. I don't expect you uh, to uh, to run with any sort of sports analogies, and hopefully that's the last sports analogy we'll roll with today. Um, but Michael's out on tour and uh, is traveling. Go see uh, Gunger on the road um, this month if you get a chance. Um, and Mike, you've got a bunch of speaking stuff coming up, so we're excited about uh, making this podcast happen. So thanks for making time today. Yeah, thank you. It was, uh, guys, so you know, I sat down and tried to record this episode by myself, <laughs> and it was the saddest, loneliest thing you can imagine. But Michael is like nonstop on the road, and this month I'm nonstop on the road, and there was not a single day in all of November where neither of us were traveling. In did the whole do, month. Did you do voices like multiple personalities <laughs> when it was just you? I uh, just I just monologued and like I was literally um, just about to hit stop and say I'm not releasing anything. And then um, you texted me back and I, I have it on the recording where I cheered when I got your text. <laughs> I think that's the deluxe edition of the podcast that gets released <laughs> with deleted material at some point down the road. Um, and, uh, and sold on eBay if that still exists. So for a uh, penny, I know, I know, uh, for those who are wondering about the schedule of the podcast, um, we're moving into more of a seasonal podcast rhythm, uh, where we record several at a time and, uh, and then release them kind of consistently. Um, Mike, you, uh, you pulled some people online and found that, um, people wanted quality over quantity and that what you discovered. Yeah. By the way, for all of you who got on Twitter and got on Facebook and talked to us about podcast scheduling. Number one, really, really encouraging. Thank you for uh, your concern for uh, Michael and I's ongoing energy. Uh, That's really refreshing. And of the options we provided, it seems like you guys overwhelmingly prefer that we do less frequent episodes at a quality equal to or greater than what we're already doing as opposed to doing lower quality regular releases anything like that so we're gonna start doing seasons of podcasts with off-season periods now when we we've skipped one week so far in the history of the show and we lost like an unbelievable amount of subscribers in a single week they've all come back in the last two episodes Uh, but if you guys are serious about seasons uh don't forget we exist when there's no podcasts coming out Right, um, but all of this is part of of gearing up for uh, 2015. We've got some huge plans. You guys have been asking for liturgies. More are coming. We can't wait to announce what we've got planned. Um, Josh uh, is is part of what we're doing now. He's helping us get some uh, some other events uh, off the ground that you're going to hear about in the near future. And of course, we're going to actually wrap up season one in December, 
when we bring on my wife, Jenny McCarg, and Lisa Gunger to talk about uh, spouses of doubt. That's like the most common question we got uh, after we did Faith, Lost, and Found 1 and 2 from you guys was, well, what's it like when you're married to someone? What does the spouse do? How, do, how does the family deal with this? What do you do with kids? We're going to address all those questions in December to wrap out season one. Uh, that's so good. That's great stuff. Really, really great stuff. Um, today, um, we, uh, we're going to take a unique approach. We're going to dig in specifically to uh, some conversations that have popped up online due to the release of the feature film Interstellar. Um, it's so funny. I saw the movie over the weekend and, uh, my first thought after it was over was I need, I need to talk to science, Mike. I have no idea what I just saw. Um, I just spent three hours and, uh, a bunch of money and popcorn and tickets on seeing this movie. And now all I have is questions. So the fact that we're doing this today is pretty incredible. So um, there is a spoiler alert for those who have not seen the movie. You may want to hit pause at this point and uh, come back to this podcast once you see the film. Uh, if you're not worried about it, then you can roll with us. But um, there's going to be a lot of great questions. We've taken questions online uh, that Mike's going to answer for us today and uh, and really excited about kind of digging in here. So, um, Mike, uh, hopefully you saw the movie over the weekend as well. I did. I saw it 10 a.m. on Saturday. Because uh, I'm old and I like matinees. <laughs> is it a matinee if it's in the morning? Is does that still work? Is it was six bucks, six dollars. Okay. All I right. mean, I was I was like, why does anyone go to movies later than ten a.m.? This is this is the way it should be done. That's great. That's amazing. Well, I think my my first question, kind of coming out of the gate, then is after seeing this movie and movies like it, I think the big question is, what is actually when you see a film like this? Um, I think a lot of people come out of the theater and they're asking, what is actually scientifically possible that we saw in that film versus what's what's complete fiction? What's made up for the entertainment um, of selling tickets and uh, and getting people really excited about seeing Matthew McConaughey in space? Um, can you walk us through just from like a 30,000 foot perspective on how do you even go about kind of deciphering clearly you have to have some sort of background and a common understanding of science but how do you even filter through like what's fiction for the sake of film and and what's real science that's possible and happening right now well i thought uh first of all the movie was perfect for our listeners because if if we're talking about science art and faith this was a piece of art that was about science and faith um, and so I actually thought, first of all, it was a good story. Mm. Uh, and I thought that was the most important thing. You know, um, some people uh, in the science community um, saw the film, didn't like the film regardless of the science. I, I liked it. Now, I'm pretty sentimental. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, uh, Frozen is my jam. So <laughs> let's be honest, like when it comes to film, if you've got uh, some family interaction, you've got some emotion on display, I'm a pretty easy sell. Now, when you when you decipher, decipher science, the first thing you have to realize is Hollywood does an overwhelmingly horrible job with science. Even sci-fi franchises, you look at Star Wars and Star Trek, and the physics is bad, there are sounds in space, 
just really fundamental problems with science in those films. Now, there's been a few standouts in Hollywood's history. Uh, Apollo 13 obviously went through painstaking work to get the basics right because it was an account of a true story. Um, but I thought Interstellar did a better job than the vast majority of Hollywood cinema. Now, That's uh, great to hear you say, Mike, because I feel like I approach movies just assuming it's all fiction, even the based on a true story stuff. I, I approach it like I remember seeing um, Mission Impossible. Tom Cruise is there's an explosion and he's blown onto the front of a helicopter oh. that is in the middle of exploding and it's on fire. And it's just like it's the very picture of something that's so ludicrous that you just I don't know. I approach film from that place that there isn't any good science involved. So to hear you even begin kind of saying that there is some good science happening in the story related to this, I think is, I think interesting for our conversation today. Well, it's all about suspension of disbelief. And for me, as someone who's at least science literate, really bad science breaks my ability to be in the story. So, you know, you look at a film and Lois Lane is, is falling very fast towards the surface of the earth that you assume eight meters per second per second acceleration. And, uh, and here comes Superman, like hypersonic. He's going to catch Lois Lane. And then he doesn't slow down. He just catches her, right? And she's right. saved. Well, Superman right. is going faster than Lois. Um, and what hurts human bodies is acceleration and deceleration. And what would actually happen in that situation is Superman would act as a giant artillery round and vaporize Lois. She'd turn into a red mist. Right. And so for me, when I watch films, if the science is bad enough, I can't stay in the story. And for most of Interstellar... I could stay in the story. Wow. And a couple of times when I got out of the story, I did more research over the weekend, and it turns out my intuition was wrong and their science was better than I thought. Oh wow. Okay. All um, right. Well let's let's take let's take it from like kind of the the arc of the story um, is that the the there is something changing related to the climate um, on planet Earth. And that basically the world is coming to an end, but not everybody knows it yet. They see signs of the climate changing. There's all these, you know, crazy dust storms and other things happening. And, and people are putting together that things are not right and things are not well on planet Earth. Um, and there's this climate change thing. Do you, what's your take on, on how they approach the environmental issue and either explaining it or not explaining it to um, the audience? They were very clever in that they didn't give you a fixed, th this is happening in number of years in the future. Right. If you take a long-term view, uh, a few century view, um, everything that Interstellar displayed on Earth is plausible. Uh, so as sort of uh, our climate's getting warmer, uh, our deserts are growing, um, it's affecting precipitation. Look at California. Uh, you can imagine uh, that that drought could spread dramatically further and further across the U.S. as, as the climate uh, continues to change. And because of climate change and human activity, we're actually already uh, in the sixth major mass extinction event in Earth's history. It's Explain that. What, you, what is that? What is the sixth extension event? When you look at the fossil record, 
there's these there's these periods where suddenly uh, biodiversity drops dramatically because of some event. Uh, super volcanoes, uh, meteors, some of them we don't know why, um, but species suddenly die off very, 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 very quickly. And whenever that happens, it's always bad news for the top of the food chain, most of all. Uh, microbes, uh, they don't care. They, they adapt. They, Their generations are so short. Microbial diversity is hardly ever affected. Um, but the bigger the animal, the longer the, the food chain, sort of supply chain it takes to, to keep your existence viable, uh, the worse extinction events can turn out. You know, uh, if you think of apex animals, um, you know, from the dinosaur era, none of them survived. Only the small dinosaurs had a chance to evolve into birds. Um, so the idea that climate change could ultimately affect the viability of Earth for humanity is sadly plausible and viable scientifically. When you think, when you talk about the sixth extinction, uh, are there five other extinctions that are we've been leading up to and we've already gone through that we should be aware of and know about? There's, there's five documented ones, basically. Um, and, uh, you know, the most recent, uh, I believe was caused, uh, when a meteor struck Mexico and wiped out most of the life on the planet, um, had a nuclear winter, the whole, whole thing had a mass die off. And that's actually what it's great for us. That's when mammals got to take over the planet, uh, in the, the, the extended lack of food, the food scarcity wiped out all the large animals and that gave mammals the space to sort of evolve and, and diversify and ultimately produce humans on this planet. So I'm sure, you know, uh, bees or whoever, uh, ends up as the next major life form on this planet. If it gets to that, we'll be very happy for our climate change. It's just not a good story for people. Sure. Sure. Uh, Real Thad Pittman, uh, his question for the liturgist was, what was the cause of the dust on the Earth there in the film? Was it gravity-related? Great question. Uh, It was not gravity-related other than dust stays on the Earth because of gravity. (laughs) Um, What actually happens with climate change, again, is you get those drought conditions. Soil gets fatigued. Uh, There was something in the movie called blight. We can assume that is some form of uh, disease or infection that is affecting their crops that fed on nitrogen started wiping out the different kinds of food crops humanity uses. So you, they just started using corn over and over and over and over, uh, which fatigues the soil. Um, and if you look back in the 1930s, we had the Great Dust Bowl, right? Uh, when soil gets fatigued and, and things start dying off and there's no roots to hold it together, you combine that with drought and, and more severe windstorms, and you would, in fact, get horrible dust storms uh, across the American continent and across the world, really. Um, That was awfully plausible, but the driving engine there is climate, not gravity. Okay, all right. Tundraval asks, he says, why did the combine, there's this moment where all the combine tractors return to the farmhouse kind of on their own. I I had the same question. Did we miss something? How How did these tractors end up in front of this farmhouse like at random and yet all in sync? Uh, that confused me too. Uh, so these these tractors were being driven by GPS. Uh, GPS is the only project in human engineering right now that uses both general and special relativity. What does that mean? It means time is moving at a different rate 
for GPS satellites than it is down here on Earth. Right. And GPS clocks are designed to accommodate for that. Right. Uh, that is an electromagnetic phenomenon that GPS uses to communicate. Gravity is responsible for that warping of time. Uh, now, GPS alone isn't enough to navigate something. Uh, your phone, to give you good directions, also has a compass. Now, compass uh, is just a magnet. It reads electromagnetic fields. What was purported to be happening in the bedroom, this anomaly, was gravitational. So uh, if it was gravity severe enough to warp clocks, it would probably be gravity severe enough to destroy that home completely and possibly the neighboring areas. I was really confused. I just had to assume that perhaps the manipulation of gravity, whatever unknown mechanism in physics that took, also manipulated either magnetism or some other electromagnetic activity. Uh, otherwise, that's a huge gaping hole in the plot. Now, right. they have some license here. In physics today, gravity is pretty much a mystery. We know a lot about the other fundamental forces of physics, but we don't know what the force carrier, the particle for gravity is. We don't know how to integrate it into quantum mechanics. So, you know, a physicist like, you know, uh, the one who was involved in the production of this film could certainly wave his hand and just say the mystery of gravity and uh, kind of write a free pass there. But sure. that, that that seems um, unsatisfying. One of the present kind of characters that's that's surrounding this story is obviously the role of NASA. Um, NASA is this program that everyone thought had kind of disappeared and was irrelevant. Um, and the government, you know, come to find out through the story of the film, the government is secretly funding uh, NASA work, even though they know public opinion uh, wouldn't make that a popular thing to, to you know, to send a press release out about because people wanted money spent on things that, you know, would allow the Earth to continue to thrive. And they felt like NASA, you know, was something that is all about other worlds and other planets and other places. That's a little bit of what kind of popular opinion is about NASA today, right? I mean, that's, you and I both live in Florida and Cape Canaveral is a kind of a big part of the story here in Florida. Um, do you think there's a role that that NASA can play in what's happening with climate change and what's happening here on Earth versus other places? Or do you think NASA, even as we think about it in 2014, um, has a different role? So NASA doesn't just do space exploration. Uh, they do basic aeronautics research. That's uh, a really important function that people don't realize they do. They help us make more efficient airplanes. They help us. Um, they're they're working on basic viability for hypersonic flight for commercial aviation. Uh, they also do a lot of planetary exploration on Earth. NASA has a ton of satellites who are focused not outward but inward, back down towards our planet. And NASA is actually instrumental in documenting and forecasting what's happening with our climate. Um, so that's that's pretty plausible. Uh, what is not as plausible is the government amidst financial crisis suddenly funding NASA more. Right. NASA's got pretty good PR uh, today. It's pretty well loved by the public. People just assume when when asked that NASA is getting about a quarter of the federal budget. When they realize that, in fact, NASA gets half of 1% of the federal budget, they think NASA's great. 
Right. Uh, so the idea that under calamity and collapsing budgets, NASA would get more funding, I thought was the least realistic part of the film. That's political science, not hard science. Uh, but it, it was really, I don't know how you would get from where we are today to a place where humanity put its hope and trust in space exploration. I think that's the right call. I just don't think we're there as a public and certainly not there as a government. And not only that, this secret NASA, uh, from an engineering perspective, was building this massive structure, this station, that was going to be lifted off the Earth by a, a, an as-yet-unidentified gravity drive. Right. I don't know how they could have been engineering that and building a structure with no idea uh, on what the ultimate propulsion, propulsion system was going to be. That left me scratching my head big time. Sure. Well, the overall strategy seemed to be that this this NASA campaign, this underground NASA campaign was to to see what kind of life could be set up um, somewhere else, not on planet Earth, and to send people, to send a, a small group of people to go and search and find the best place for life, a new life and a new world to be set up. Uh, the way they had to get there, though, was through what's called a wormhole. Um, explain to us, is this wormhole thing something put together by Hollywood, or does it actually exist, and is it plausible to travel through a wormhole? Uh, wormholes are totally plausible in modern physics. Uh, in fact, some physicists believe that quantum entanglement, this characteristic that you can take two quantum particles and link them and they'll mirror each other's state uh, even when separated by distance is done via a quantum wormhole so we're kind of on the threshold of validating wormholes as not just theoretical but an existing thing but the important word there is quantum <laughs> right uh, wormholes uh if they exist um on a, on a more macro scale would require um, a particular model of the universe uh, which is currently called brain theory not brain as in your head but as in part of the word membrane and you can imagine that uh, uh, the universe exists as a, as a four dimensional sheet and to do a wormhole you effectively fold that sheet uh, back on itself um, and then uh, you create a tunnel between those folded universe sheet now you're folding four dimensional space which isn't as crazy as it sounds because the sun and anything with mass curves four dimensional space that's how orbits work that's how gravity works that's what Einstein's relativity tells us and this is that scene in the in the film where they are folding the piece of paper yes and I thought that man you know, I've read so many physics books to understand wormholes. Yeah, was that a good explanation and, and kind of prop for that? It was the best explanation I've seen, especially for why this wormhole was a sphere and not a circle. Right. Because you would expect people, usually when you talk about portals, cartoons, and video games have trained us that you'll have an oval that you step through. Yeah. But that's not a hole in three-dimensional space. That's a hole in two-dimensional space. So the, a spherical opening... Oh, man, I, I totally geeked out. And not only that, uh, my, one of my favorite parts about this film is that they, um, the way you make computer graphics is a technique called ray tracing, where you, where you basically have computers simulate rays of light, uh, and, and that's how they build the model. 
the, all those models are made make an assumption that light travels in a straight line. Mm-hmm. And so they rewrote a renderer just for this film for the wormhole and the black hole that allowed for curved light. Uh, that's never been done before. And so you could make an argument that these visuals are the most accurate representations of wormholes and supermassive black holes that have ever been produced by humanity wow. for a Hollywood film. Sure. Oh my gosh, wonderful. Sure. Okay, so so you brought up the black hole. So so what's the relationship of the black hole to the to the wormhole then? The um, none. They just happen to create a wormhole near a black hole. Who okay. whoever later in the plot does that. Uh, okay. that that was just uh the wormhole was the mechanism by which we arrived at the black hole. Right. Now there are ideas in physics that black holes are wormholes inside the singularity. Uh, but that that wasn't the case in this film. Okay. And and explain explain then the role of a black hole in general like as we know it through science. Okay. Matter is mostly empty space. We know that. Protons, electrons, protons themselves are mostly empty space. You got three quarks which are tiny. They glue together and they make a proton. So, um, when gravity gets intense enough, it can actually force matter to collapse in upon itself. And as that density increases, you can reach a point where there's so much gravity that nothing that gets to that black hole can get away. That boundary is called an event horizon. And you can take any amount of matter, and if you compress it enough, it will turn into a black hole. So the Earth could be turned into a black hole if you compressed it down enough. I don't remember the exact threshold. Uh, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like a softball or maybe a pea. It's very, very small. But you take the same amount of matter in the whole planet and you make it tiny, you get a, you get a black hole. It wouldn't last very long because black holes evaporate, but that's, that's a tangent. Um, but so uh, black holes are anytime gravity's gotten so intense that there's no exit anymore. Once you're there, you're there. Now that's weird in physics. But uh, is it like is it like a a cosmic version of quicksand? And then it pulls you in, and you you kind of get sucked in, and you can't. Well, it's it's cur- it's curved space time, and this is basically you're curving space time so much that there's a pit at the bottom instead of a, okay. a it's a bottomless pit of gravity. So right. yes, absolutely, you start getting close to a black hole you're going to accelerate toward it. And if you get too close to the, if you get to the event horizon, no amount of energy can get you back up. Okay. Which is, whoa. <laughs> right. Now right. there's, there's black holes and then there's super massive black holes. Uh, so a lot of black holes are like stellar mass. They're like 10 or 12. A stellar mass is the weight of our sun, by the way. Um, so, but super massive black holes are millions of black holes and gargantuan the black hole in Interstellar is a supermassive black hole who's rotating near the speed of light, um, and those are crazy, wacky things. What we do know about black holes is obviously the planets around them are pretty cold and dark. Do, is there anything else we need to know about the aesthetic or the environment around these black holes? I was really confused by the film at this point because they landed on a planet covered in water near a black hole. Um, and that doesn't make any sense. Um, if a planet's close enough to a black hole to experience the kind of relativistic effects, uh, that you saw in the movie where one 
hour equals seven years back on Earth. Right. Yeah. I would expect that planet to exhibit some specific characteristics. One of those is I'd expect it to break apart. Jupiter's moons, the close ones, are in a constant state of flux. They're, they're oblong, and they're being torn apart by Jupiter's gravity. And that's just Jupiter. So here you have something with millions of times the mass of our sun and a planet in a stable orbit. So, but it's a weird, it's a weird black hole. Again, it's rotating near light speed. So that's going to kind of, uh, it, that's going to amplify the effects of relativity. So let's assume there is some orbit and they did the math that's stable. The, you'd still be getting bombarded with matter that's being sucked toward this black hole. One, your orbital velocity would be unfathomable. It'd be incredibly fast. Uh, and I'm not sure how you would ex- accelerate a spaceship to that speed to land on the planet to the fir- in the first place. Right. Uh, but number two, um, there'd be stuff flying through space near light speed. Now, if you think about like when meteors strike the Earth, think about recently we had a meteor strike over Russia and there was footage of it, and it, it, it exploded with a force of nuclear bombs, and there were injuries, and it knocked out all these windows. Well, that was moving, you know, 100,000 miles an hour, 150,000 miles an hour. You'd have meteors traveling near light speed bombarding this planet. Right. So uh, it wouldn't take very many of those to turn a planet into rubble. Uh, and plus, black holes are called black holes for a reason. Now, they're... they're surrounded by something called an accretion disk. This is the matter that's being sucked in. Uh, And that matter does get heated to millions of degrees, like star-like temperatures. But compared to the amount of illumination and heat that comes from the entire surface of a star, there's not that much from an accretion disk. So I was surprised by the relative amount of light and warmth on all these black hole planets in the film. Uh, I'm hoping I've ordered the book, The Science of Interstellar, that there'll be answers in there because that was a really big head scratcher. And the other thing that bugged me, and this was like the most confusing thing in the movie, uh, was that they could take off from these planets at all. But I think we've got some questions that'll address that. So you're you're saying that when once you land on one of these planets who that have the kind of you know, planetary environment that they do, um, you know, you being able to walk around out there and you being able to kind of, even though it's cold, there, there wasn't, you still have some questions about whether you could actually function and walk. Well, and- no, you could function and walk. Uh, what I'm talking about is basic rocket science. How did they make the ship take off again? Right. Uh, 130% of Earth's gravity is, 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 that's pretty tolerable, really. Um, compared to some other even places in our solar system. Right. Um, but, well, so I'll, I'll just get into it. Like, uh, so this first planet, you have these uh, tidal waves, massive tidal waves uh, that they're trying to avoid. Yeah. And uh, I would think a planet close enough to a black hole to have tidal waves like that would be tidally locked. So the same part of that planet would always face gargantuan. Mm-hmm. and its tides would always stay in the same spot. So totally feasible to have these massive walls of water, less feasible that they would be moving. Now, if there's some unknown force causing this planet to rotate, you would have those giant uh, tidal waves. But so you, you have 8 meters per second per second of gravitational acceleration on the Earth. Now, if this planet has 130% of Earth's gravity, 
it's going to have a higher rate of gravitational acceleration. We can't calculate it precisely because we don't know either the planet's density or its circumference, so we can't run the normal equations right. to get the exact escape velocity, but you can guess that you're looking at between 10 or 11 meters per second of acceleration towards the center of mass of that planet. Now, to get off the Earth like the Apollo astronauts did, you have to accelerate a rocket to 25,000 miles per hour. To get into Earth orbit, low Earth orbit, like the space shuttle did, you've still got to get between 17 and 18,000 miles per hour. So on this unknown planet, this water world, you're going to need to beat 32,000 miles per hour to get off the planet they visited. Um, this is an issue because when you look at the Saturn rocket or you look at excuse me, <clears throat> the space shuttle, they're giant, multi-story structures, and they're only so big because they have to hold a ton of fuel. Right. Rocket equations tell us that not only do you have to have, to have enough fuel to accelerate what you're getting out of orbit, you also have to have enough fuel to accelerate the fuel. You can imagine if you took your car and you were going to drive to from the east coast to the west coast of the United States, but you had to carry all the gas with you in the car. Right. Right? You have to, as you add more gas in a big gas trailer, you have to keep adding more gas to cover the weight of the gas. And when they had these little landers in Interstellar, there were no fuel tanks, and they were very clearly conventional rockets, which means what creates thrust is exhaust velocity, and they had no fuel to create that exhaust velocity. That really, really confused me. Not to mention, uh, you know, you could say, well, they made a they made a tremendous burn. They took you know the maximum acceleration. Well, humans can only accelerate so fast without dying. Right. That's a big point. And number two, in an atmosphere, if you accelerate too quickly, you burn up and explode so um that was like phenomenally confusing for me to have modeled so accurately to have worked on relativistic orbits to have compensated for some problems in really advanced physics but avoid like commonly known scientific knowledge today about rocket science Woo! really confused me okay so it feels like they may have taken some creative liberties on travel yeah, but that means for me, every single time a spaceship took off, I rolled my eyes and left the story. <laughs> every time. I couldn't let it go. So you wanted to see, so from a scientific standpoint, you wanted to see them trapped on that first planet, or you wanted to see, what did you, what did you want to see? What would have made more sense from a scientific you standpoint? You know, either they are harvesting fuel locally, which is something we talked about theoretically in science, or this giant space station that they've got that they're traveling around with. It could drop a vehicle full of fuel, you know, just something, some nod to the fact that the most fundamental understandings of physics and rocket equations means our primary difficulty is dealing with fuel. Um, I, it's just a really fundamental part of space exploration. Now, you know, if you've got a gravity drive later in the film, great. But at this point, there's no gravity drive. That's yeah. a chemical rocket. Where's yeah. your gas? It's so great looking at this film through your eyes because how they're traveling around in spaceships was the least of all of my concerns. <laughs> it, that makes, because of all the movies that I've grown up with where people in space fly around in spaceships, it just makes sense that they can fly a spaceship around. And now as you're breaking it down for us, um, yeah, clearly there's but, way more So questions. even Star Trek or Star Wars, they give us something to chew on. There's warp drive. There's hyperdrive. There's a non-propellant-based system. 
and no such technology was introduced in Interstellar. Right. Nothing new is what you're saying. Right. Okay. All right. Um, can we talk about this this relativity situation with the uh, as it relates to to one one hour equals seven years? Yeah, that's totally plausible. Is it? I mean, how how does that fundamentally work? Where on Earth it would be seven years, and and you can travel somewhere else, and in real time it feels like an hour to you based on where you've traveled in the universe. So our intuition tells us that time is a universal constant. Because it's all our experience prepares us for that. But time and space are the same thing. That's what Einstein taught us. And that's been proven in a myriad ways. If it wasn't true, GPS wouldn't work the way it's built. Uh, according to Newtonian physics, uh, Mercury's orbit around the sun is wrong. Because it's a relativistic orbit. Gravity and velocity distort space-time. So the speed of light exists not because you can't go any faster. It's not some cosmic speed limit, but because of time dilation. If you somehow traveled faster than the speed of light from your own reference frame, you would arrive before you left. And that's not possible. Right. That's where the speed of light comes from. Right. So um, if we could build a spaceship that traveled at a significant fraction of light speed, which we have no idea how to do, by the way. That's a phenomenal amount of energy. We can accelerate some things near light speed, like protons and subatomic particles. That's what the Large Hadron Collider does. But anything with more mass than that, the amount of energy required is ridiculous. Right. So, um, and I really appreciate most films that, that, that work on time dilation, uh, they make you go really fast. And that's way less realistic than dropping someone in a gravity well. I, okay. I love this. But so so again, gravity bends the fabric of space, which is space-time. It bends not only physical space, but it bends time. Um so if you get too close to some severe source of gravity, like a black hole, time starts to stretch out. And it actually almost when you get to the very edge of a singularity, that time dilation gets more severe. So we're you know, uh, it, it almost gets infinite. Uh, it's crazy. <laughs> Do you see a moment in the future in which plastic surgeons are going to harvest this kind of science to slow down the growth and development of people on the earth <laughs> so they can look younger? I, I, can, I can see people going, wait a second, I want to be 100 years old and look like Matthew McConaughey. That you would be 100 years funny. old from Earth's perspective, from right. your own perspective, no time would have passed or very little time would have passed. So the only way you could do that would be to grow clones inside of spaceships, put them in orbit around a black hole um, and keep them there stably. So it, you could do it, but it would be like a, a $20 trillion facelift. Um, the amount of resources required to pull that off. I can't believe okay. I'm examining the plausibility of that so seriously. No, I can imagine. <laughs> I want Matthew McConaughey looks good for 124 years old. I uh, I want to figure out what his secret was. But he, he had to pay a price. He didn't actually live the 124 years. Yes. Good point. Thank you for bringing that up, bringing that back into perspective for those who are trying to stay young. And that's how relativity works. Uh, it's totally real, totally measurable right now. Like when you get, it's as simple as this is true. Every time you fly 
every time you get on an airplane, you experience time dilation. Right. Because of the speed of the aircraft and its greater distance from the center of Earth's gravity well. Now, it's very, very small, but it's measurable. Uh, so if you take very accurate clocks and you put you know, one on the top of a mountain and the other at sea level, in time, they drift from each other because time's not flowing at the same rate. Uh, and I, people trip out with that. If you've never studied relativity, that seems unbelievable and fantastic. But uh, it's, it's good science and proven. Sure, sure. Let's get back to some of the questions um, from uh, some of our friends online. Um, let's see. We've got Joe Stroop uh, asked the question: If the wormhole, if the wormhole was placed by fifth-dimensional humans of the future, but they need a wormhole to survive to that point, how? Like his point is like, how does how does that work? Yes. First of all, uh, fifth-dimensional humans of the future would no longer be humans. Um, that would be like uh, you know. Are these a lungfish saying uh, large brained lungfish of the future talking about humans. <laughs> right, right. It's <laughs> so right. a lot of evolution in there. Yeah. Um, and by the way, for, for those listeners, I know we have some more uh, um, theologically conservative folks that are along for the ride. We appreciate you. I'm making tons of scientific assumptions here that you don't hold. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge that. Um, and just feel free to think I'm a lunatic. I'm cool with and, it. And here in a few minutes, we'll get into some theology and, and kind of some of the God aspects of all this. But let's let's get into the fifth dimensional humans in the future. What what are your thoughts on that? So that's, you know, s- could theoretically some distant descendant of ours transcend space-time? Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know. So, we're talking about so far in the future and so far beyond our ability to model. Um, I think the question, though, is, is that something that scientifically if 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 a plus b equals c and you kind of follow that you know some sort of formula you're saying that is plausible versus some sort of fictional thing that was made up yeah i mean more likely than we turn into middle earth (laughs) or whatever there's at least some basis there but where this question really makes a great point is fifth dimensional humans were only able to do so because they went back in time and protected themselves before they were ready to transcend Earth. Sure. There's sure. a real causality issue there um, that I think was just like a... They either needed to address that in the story or or they just missed it. And I have a hard time believing that maybe there's something on the cutting room floor that is yep. going to fix this in the expanded developer edition. But right okay. now, that was just some basic... Like you guys messed the story up. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, TD Row 87, he asked, why did they have to ruin the movie by going into the black hole? Do you want to explain that? Yes. Um, so I was really nervous when I realized he was going to go into the black hole. First of all, because he shouldn't be able to. Right. The accretion dish should have vaporized him. Uh, now, if we assume distant descendants of ours, trans humans are sort of paving the way into the black hole for him. <laughs> okay, right. great. Right. But then I thought, how in the world are you going to put on screen what happens inside of a black hole? It's a singularity. The laws of physics don't work anymore. Right. Like, how on earth are you going to portray that? And at first, I was deeply disappointed when he woke up in this tesseract and it was all these lines. And I was like, that's not a singularity. 
But then as the scene unfolded, and it turns out that this is a three-dimensional construct in the singularity designed for a four-dimensional being like a human who's locked on the fourth dimension, by the way, who can't move freely in time, only in, in the three dimensions of space, for him to interact with his own past. Okay, I, I didn't hate it. Um, I thought the way gravity was used to manipulate the past was strange. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, for example, the Morse code on the watch, like the watch kept moving and the Morse code kept happening. That was strange. It's also really convenient that they put a walking supercomputer in the singularity with him to not only do the measurements of the singularity, but rapidly derive the mathematical implications. Right. A more feasible thing would be a team of scientists fell into the singularity and spent a few decades in there puzzling things out before transmitting their right. results back. Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of graphs there. Now, the thing is, a singularity in physics, you're talking about like the ultimate deus ex machina. Um, like that is God from the machine. That is going to get you out of any writing trap because you can just say, well, singularity. Um. But yeah, just all kind of things. Like if you're manipulating gravity, knocking books down, and moving hands on a clock, are really strange limitations to how you can manifest gravity. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, if you can manifest gravity that precisely, just like make marks on a desk. You know what right. I mean? Just write the thing out. Uh, I get from a storytelling perspective that's less interesting, but again, this 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 part did strain uh, my ability to keep my belief, um, my 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 suspension of belief. But but it was kind of the way they were trying to tie it all together, to pull the story together and to bring it to an end. Um, so you're saying it, it may have been more of a storytelling device than good science. Well, there is no good science on a singularity. That's right. the great thing for them. Nobody has any idea. If you go back to the beginning of the universe of the singularity or in a black hole, nobody has any idea because our math completely breaks down. Right. Uh, so they got to lean into mystery there. It's just if I get to use infinite mystery, I don't know. I don't know if that's the way I would have gone. But uh, I also have never released a major film. So <laughs> I'm a little hesitant to criticize their storytelling because uh, as someone who does write, it sure. is quite difficult. Yeah, it is a challenge, and, and I think that's what's so compelling about this film is um, is knowing that they have the daunting challenge of selling tickets and trying to to get pop popular culture to buy into this film, you know, and and see it as accessible from an entertainment value standpoint, but also um, to not be discredited from a scientific standpoint too. So, I mean, the the balance they were trying to run with this is uh, you know daunting to say the least. Um, all right, we have another question here from, uh, let's see, we've got TD Row uh, 87 has uh, one other question I want to get to. Um, wouldn't Cooper know that by sending a stay message, he'd simply be creating another universe if that Cooper stayed? I'm going to cut the writer's slack here. Okay. Cooper is the first human being to fall into a black hole, and he's seeing a daughter he thought he would never see again. Right. His, uh, his limbic system took over. He okay. wasn't doing advanced uh, reasoning in his prefrontal cortex. He was in a panic state, and why wouldn't he be? <laughs> what do you mean his limbics took over? What does that mean? So the, the, our frequent listeners already know, but the, the brain is uh, layered 
The outer layers are more advanced, more evolutionarily recent, more arguably human. The inner layers are more primitive. When you are in a disaster situation, your limbic system, your rat brain, takes over the show. It pushes your higher brain functions aside. It does fight or flight. It manipulates you with emotions, anger, fear, uh, in some cases even affection uh, and love. Um, so I fully believe Cooper, having just had this incredible physical fear, lots of adrenaline ejected from a, a, a spaceship inside a black hole, uh, presumably to his immediate death, instead finds himself in a completely unfathomable set of circumstances. Uh, of course, of course, you write the message, stay. Right. Because you don't care if it creates a paradox. Right. You want to be with your daughter and not in the middle of a black hole. Sure. Yeah, that seems obvious. Um, Austin McNair uh, asks, any science behind the possibilities of hypersleep? Um, now, clearly, this was a fascinating device they used, um, you know, to allow the body to, to be in some sort of recovery mode. Um, explain hypersleep and whether there's any good science behind that. Uh, this was one of my favorite parts of the film. Uh, even to go to Mars, we face real issues. You're talking about a six-month trip, best case. Six months in space, carrying not only all your fuel, but all your food and your water. Uh, that's a that's an issue. Humans are pretty expensive when it comes to food and water. We need a lot of it to continue to survive. Now, you can recycle water to some degree, but food food's an issue. Uh, not only that, on Earth, in our cosmic cradle... Uh, we're protected from the harshness of space. The sun is constantly spewing radiation that's very bad for us. And our atmosphere blocks it, right? Yeah. Uh, I think most of our listeners would probably view that as the loving hand of God. Some of our listeners view that as uh, a necessity for evolution to happen, and some both. Uh, but whatever reason, when we uh, send people out of space, you can only go to space so many times as an astronaut. I don't know if you know that. The amount of time you spend outside the Earth's atmosphere is measured mm. because your risk of cancer starts to skyrocket mm. from genetic damage from cosmic rays. So if you could put people into hypersleep, you fix the food and water problem. If they go into a reduced metabolic state, they don't consume as many resources. Well, it's actually possible today to induce a particular type of uh, safe hypothermia and put people in a in a hibernation state, effectively, for about a week. But NASA's funding that research to see if we can extend that period much, much, much farther. The same way frogs and bears and other animals hibernate, you can induce hibernation in humans by manipulating the respiratory passage uh, with a carefully controlled low temperature mist. So, is it is there any similarities to like being in a coma? Probably, probably coma. At, yeah, probably in the neighborhood. Sure, like okay. a medically induced coma, not as sure. severe. Um, you probably could dream in a hibernated hibernation state, which you're not really going to do in a medicated coma. Right. But what was great is not only did, um, and I, I haven't seen this in real science, so this this could be one of those situations where real science emulates science fiction. As these guys went into hypersleep, they were immersed in water. And water is an incredibly effective radiation shield. So you can imagine if we really did put astronauts 
in uh, some state of hibernation or suspended animation and then dip them in water, you're mitigating the harmful effects of space travel. You're solving the food and water issue and you're solving the radiation issue all at the same time. I thought that was brilliant. Wouldn't you need to be hooked up to some sort of IV or something? Yeah, you totally need an IV and you would actually, and I didn't see this in the film, you'd probably need a breathing tube. <laughs> right. They, they didn't show breathing tube, IV, or um, or some, there, there were a few elements that seemed to be, they just kind of slipped into this tube that was underwater and didn't really explain how how they were staying alive. I mean, it was it was a subtle device, but... If you almost halted metabolism, right, you could do that. I don't know what that mechanism would be, but also, uh, although I am a lover of science, uh, this is definitely not the areas of science I've spent the most time studying. Um, you know, medicine in general, uh, you know, I, I like doctors. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know, but I think I think on a fundamental level, the idea of we're going to sleep in a very deep sleep and we're surrounded by water was 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 quite clever and less of a stretch than many of the other things we saw in the film. Sure, sure. Well, we talked a lot about the science here. We talked a little bit about some of the evolutionary process, um, a little bit about what was fictionalized. Um, there are some people that approach science as when we talk about science, they understand that we're talking about um, kind of the nature of how God has set some things in motion. There are other people, when we talk about science, feel as though we are not talking about God being at work. Um, where is where is God at work in a movie like this? Where is his hand? Where is his, what is, what is his role in the universe for those that, that think about him being involved in science and for those that even separate God from science? I thought Interstellar worked with a basic assumption that there's no such thing as God. I thought Interstellar worked if you have sort of a pantheistic assumption that the universe itself is God. I think uh, Interstellar works well if you make an assumption that God is indeed some higher force or higher reality, and they alluded to that in the dialogue whenever they spoke about the transcendent reality of love. Um. So in my own particular theology, I am a guy who both believes in God and experiences God in a personal way, but also believes that the universe formed in an ancient Big Bang and that uh, life emerged on this planet through a relatively brutal and competitive process called evolution via natural selection. And um, a lot of those things uh, really push back and wrestle with our assumptions and dogmas and beliefs about God. For someone like me who sees God as present somehow and involved in the way that nature has unfolded so far, uh, I don't see that stopping. So it, this didn't, for me, this was not a challenging movie faith-wise. This is very much how I see the unfolding story of, of God and man continuing, that we continue. So you to. see... You see the the science in this film um, as a a complement to the existence of God and His work on the earth, not as a separate conversation. However, God actually is, and we don't know. In my opinion, um, we experience God. You know, I belong to a faith tradition that believes God 
was specially manifest in a particular person named Jesus. Many of my friends think that's lunacy. I get that. Um, but um, for whatever reason, God seems very content to allow creation to continue to unfold. Things are not static. They have never been static. Things are constantly changing. Things are constantly in flux. And amidst this changing and dynamic universe, we find constant beauty. We find joy. We find love. We also find struggle and pain and heartache. But, um, you know, really good research seems to indicate that experiencing those moments is deeply involved in our ability to experience joy as well. I think of Brene Brown's research, for example. Standing up from cracks and clay and peaks of earth in full display. They break the lines to break the sky. So I don't have any problem believing that if we stick around long enough, part of our work in God's creation is to one day leave this planet. And I understand a lot of people can't follow that. The chaos of creation's dance, a tapestry, a symphony of life himself. You know, science is, is pretty clear. You know, the Earth is, it's got maybe, maybe four, four and a half billion years left in it. Uh, best case. Um, now, humans have only been around for a couple hundred thousand years. That's an unimaginably long amount of time. But if our kids keep having kids and their kids keep having kids, eventually you can cross time frames like that. Life has so far. God seems content to let us continue to grow and to change and to experience new things. Um, and I thought, and this will sound weak sauce to some people, but whatever. Could it be there's a nod to a higher power in this movie already? Mm. And that somehow humanity was allowed to go back and save itself. Mm. Is is that plot whole, as people have described it, perhaps a nod to mm. some degree of theism in this film? Could that have been one of these moments that we don't understand how or why? But God intervenes and helps us help ourselves. That's such a good point. I I think the other side of the faith conversation for me that I think stuck out was whenever I think about people involved in in putting together a life and career based on good science, I feel like 
the idea that they there isn't a faith element to what they do is is a big part of the PR plan. I think what I saw in this film is there are people putting together good science and making decisions based on, you know, everything they can put together in a formula. But at the end of the day, they're still making decisions based on faith and hope, right? You don't know what is going to happen. You you have as many of the formulas and theories put together that you can, but even good science leads scientists to have to roll the dice and gamble and and hope that things are going to not have been a waste of time and be effective, right? Is 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 there a faith element to science that scientists don't often talk about that comes across in this film? I think so. Uh, you know, there are certainly scientists um, who have no belief in God whatsoever. But there are many scientists, uh, and I know many scientists, who are good scientists doing good research who believe in God. Uh, Heisenberg said in one of my favorite quotes, The first gulp of the natural sciences will make you an atheist, but God is waiting for you at the bottom of the glass. Mm. Uh, you know, I've got some friends who roll their eyes at that. I think that's incredibly beautiful. Here's the thing. Having had a gulp of natural science that made me an atheist, as I've continued to drink and I've found God again, that God at the bottom of the glass is not the same God I lost at the first gulp. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think scientifically enlightened people probably have different conceptions and understandings about their faith uh, than people who are, are, are not really into science or non-science folk. Yeah. Um, but you know, do I believe in God because I've experienced God as a transcendent reality or do I believe in God because evolution has shaped my brain to believe I've experienced God as a transcendent reality? Mm. I don't really care. Mm. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of people just lean into that mystery. Um, you know, I, I tell people theologically, I'm probably closer to a deist, but pragmatically, I know God is a being and I don't try to balance that equation because doing so collapses it. Um, it, 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 I don't try to master it. Uh, I just try to enjoy it. Uh, and that doesn't mean I reject science. I think anyone who listens could, could understand. I take science very seriously and I don't, I don't shape science with my faith. Sure. But at some level, like you said, there's a hope I hold on to that is beyond any reason. And I think that hope is useful and beautiful and the essence of what it means to believe. That's great. And I also feel like, I think what I'm getting at too, is it feels like even in this, the, the scientists are going, I hope this works. Like there isn't any guarantee that all of their data adds up to what they want it to add up to, right? I mean, there's a... There's oh, yeah. Yeah, we never know this stuff's going to work. That's right. science. I, science I is think, failing over and over and over. Right. I think I think that's that's the hope and faith side, even from a non-spiritual faith, you know, standpoint where, you know, scientists kind of stand on these, these, you know, bedrock facts as far as many of them are concerned. But I think what was fascinating to me about this movie is, is this kind of roll of the dice. I hope, I hope this works, you know, rather than... Uh, facts are facts, and this is all going to work out just like it, you know, does in my laboratory. You know what I'm saying? I do. I mean, so that's how we got to the moon, right? There, that, that shouldn't have worked. 
right, right. But we, because we thought we could make it work, we did the impossible. Right. Uh, right. You know, and you, re, I've, you heard it here a lot. Reasonable people don't start businesses. Right. Because businesses statistically don't work. It makes no sense to start your own business. It's such a gamble. I mean, you're. it's better than playing the lottery, but not a lot better than playing the lottery. Uh, but when people transcend and refuse to accept those facts, sometimes you win. And those moments of winning are what shapes our culture and shapes our history. Uh, yeah, totally. I'm with you. That's, that's, that's a good thought. Well, this has been super insightful, Mike. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to think through this for us. Do you have additional resources or places people can go um, to, to learn more about some of the things that you've talked about here today? In the show notes on theliturgist.com slash podcast, I'll have some links. Uh, I'll have a link to the book, The Science of Interstellar, which is from one of the film's producers uh, that I can't wait to read. I know a lot of you will want to, too. I'll have articles uh, by astronomers and astrophysicists with their take on the film. Of course, we also want you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, that's not only makes it easier on you, it also helps this program continue to grow. And if you have thoughts or questions or comments, we'd love for you to do so either at theliturgist.com slash podcast. You can join us on Twitter at The Liturgist, or we'll see you on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Liturgist. Uh, this has been great. Thanks so much, Science Mike. Uh, to all the listeners out there, this has been uh, an incredible experience. Hope you've enjoyed this hour. And uh, for uh, Science Mike and Josh Luan Loveless, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. This is not the end. This is not the end of this. We'll open our eyes.